0: Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to season two of the Sing When You're Losing podcast. We are here to help you learn to make the most of every situation. Setbacks and struggles aren't meant to stop us, they're meant to teach us. So whatever you're going through, it's only temporary, but you still have to endure it. So if you're going to live it, you may as well learn to sing when you're losing. In the upcoming weeks, we'll be talking to various guests about ways to make the most of the current crisis we're in. None of us would choose this, but I believe that it's possible to come out of it stronger than when you went in. Obviously, all the current episodes will be recorded online, so please be patient with the occasional lack of sound quality. If you can persevere, I have no doubt that you will enjoy it and grow from it. Now join me, your host, Buddy Owen, as you learn to sing when you're losing. Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to the Sing When You're Losing podcast. Really good to have you back for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the last episode with NFL big man Sam Ocho, current free agent linebacker, former linebacker with the Buccaneers, the Chicago Bears, and the Arizona Cardinals. Today, we're back in the UK and back on football. It's, I'm, I'm really privileged to have with me today Chris Freestone, and Chris is the, he'll correct me if I get this wrong, National Coach Development Manager for the EFL Trust. Did I get that right, Chris?
1: Yes, yes 100%.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, very good. Chris is at home, which is where? Uh, Nottingham. Very good, and uh, I am on holiday in Spain, so uh, recording this from Spain. And because of COVID, all the private rooms are closed, so I'm in the hotel lobby. Uh, So any background noise that you hear today, folks, that it's my fault. And if you can translate any of the Spanish for me, that's great. I hope you enjoy this uh, as we get to know Chris just a little bit. Uh, Chris has had a very long career in football, and we're going to try to cover as much of that as we possibly can. So Chris, you are in Nottingham. Is that where you're from originally?
1: Yes, born and bred in Nottingham. Um, not really been too far away, apart from when I, some of the clubs I used to play for. Obviously, we used to live um, different parts of the country, but um, as soon as I could, I, I came back to Nottingham, based myself back here, and sort of travelled between any of the other clubs I played for. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I love it. It's, it's nice city, big city.
0: Very good. So you're married now?
1: Yes. Yeah, I got two kids, just here in Nottingham, doing our thing.
0: We'll come back to uh, what you're doing now, your role with the EFL Trust, your past roles. Uh, but let's get to know you a little bit, um, Chris, the, the player. So really quickly, what clubs did you play for?
1: Oh my days. Quickly. Um, OK, um, so I started at uh, Middlesbrough and then I went to, um, so I spent three years at Middlesbrough and then I went to Northampton Town. And then from a couple of years there to Hartlepool, Hartlepool United, Shrewsbury Town. Uh, I had a couple of loan spells at Cheltenham and, and Carlisle. So I got around, to put it that way. I got around the leagues a little bit and then sort of went through the conference with, uh, I went to Forest Green and a, and a couple of other clubs and sort of worked my way back down. So I worked my way up to the premiership and then worked my way back down to sort of wherever I could play wherever my legs would take me. That's not an
0: uncommon story, actually, for a lot of footballers, is it, just no, trying really. to hold on to that career for as long as possible?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it was all I wanted to do as a kid. So, you know, I, I went through all the non-leagues and I was fortunate enough to get picked up by Middlesbrough from um, a, a team called Arnold Town, which was like, sort of five, step six, Northern Counties East they played in. Uh, and I got picked up from from Middlesbrough from there, which was great. So the club got a little bit of money for me, and, and I made the jump, um, huge jump, to uh, to Middlesbrough and, and and had a good, good time there. Really good time.
0: So out of all those clubs, tell us who is the best player you ever played with?
1: I've been quite fortunate to be honest, but probably the best one I've ever played with would be Janina. Uh, so the uh, Young Brazilian, Janinho, probably one of the best players, quickest feet, very quick brain, uh, unbelievable talent, unbelievable skill, and a nice person as well. You know, he's not just uh, not just an excellent footballer, but he was a genuine nice person, you know, and um, he, he, was, he was excellent. He was absolutely outstanding to play with.
0: And that was at Borough, wasn't it? He was at Borough yeah. for a while, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah they,
1: they, they love him up there. I mean, to be honest with you, they'll probably end up having a statue of him. as how much they love him up there. until. I think he's been back three times you know he he was there when I was there he left he came back again he won the calling cup he left he came back again he he loves the place absolutely adores it so and and they love him as well so yeah uh, there will definitely be a statue of him some at some stage yeah (laughs)
0: I think a lot of us um wondered why Janino went to Middlesbrough it wasn't Uh, Middlesbrough at the time wasn't a place where a lot of uh, that type of player landed, was it?
1: No, not at all. I mean, you know, my journey up there, the day I signed, I didn't even know where Middlesbrough was. You know, I I just drove up there, the sun was shining, um, and then we got near Middlesbrough and it just went black. You know, it's a a dark and cold place, but I loved it. I absolutely loved it up there and I, I wondered what I was coming to and I can only imagine what Janinho was thinking coming from Brazil you know, turning up in uh, the freezing cold northeast. Um, but at the end of the day, Brian Robson was the manager and Brian Robson was an absolute legend. So why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you sign? And he, he managed to bring in some big name players based on uh, who he is rather than uh, what we could do and what we were good at.
0: Yeah, it's great when clubs like that manage to get a few of those players in. <clears throat> so Juninho was probably the best player you ever played with. Yes. Who was the toughest player you ever played against?
1: There was the, as I said, because I'm a centre forward, so as a centre forward, I, I usually end up playing against uh, one centre half or two centre halves. So, um, you know, I I play against uh, Gary Mabbott and Sol Campbell at Tottenham. That was very difficult because I'm only five foot ten, and they're both about six foot six. And there was Pallister and Bruce at Man U. That was a, a, another tough one. Obviously, they were. There. They were the champions. So, as, as centre halves go, probably those those four. But being on the pitch, probably one of the best players I played against would be um, Roberto Mancini when we played we played Sampdoria at the Riverside, <laughs> and Roberto Mancini was uh unbelievable. It's just <laughs> unbelievable, frightening, and um, he was, was immense. Yeah, yeah, it was. I'd probably say he, he was probably the the harder. You couldn't get the ball off him. Uh, it was just so. So casual cool with it and, you know, nothing faced him. It was, it was unreal, unreal to play against.
0: So here's a question for you uh, that I tend to ask most of the footballers and some are willing to name names and some aren't, (laughs) but who can you remember? Every club has them. The players who are fantastic on the training pitch, but can't seem to translate it to Saturdays. Uh, can you think of that player who's the the one player that you can think of that uh that could could do it you know <laughs> training day superstar
1: there's a, there's a few there's a few i'm not going to name names um because they'll probably phone me up and abuse me down the phone um but i'd probably say there was there was a few at every club that i've been at there's one there's always one or two. Um, and sometimes it, the other way around as well, that are terrible in training, you know, um, it's just absolutely awful in training and legendary in in games. It's just, you know, and, and we all, I also played with, with people with, that were uh, injured for the entire week. Um, hardly ever made the training ground until Friday, but seemed to play and then were outstanding and then were injured again on Monday. You know, it's usually the older players. Usually older players that um, that are like that, but um, I, I, can't, I can't I can't name names. I will get abused. <laughs> they'll, they'll tell me they were lying, and they'll say that they were um, they were awesome in games as well. But um, um, yeah, it's, it's it's a difficult one, having played for so many clubs. But there was there's there's one at every single club. I would say that I played at, and like I say, the other way round as well. That were um, awful in training, yet still managed to. That still managed to play, and we will beat us at the weekend. But I can't name names. I'm sorry.
0: No, that's fair enough. <laughs> not not everyone does. It's more fun <laughs> when they do, but that's okay. We'll let you off on that. Um Who was the best coach that you ever played for, in terms of man management?
1: To be honest with you, when I when I went to Middlesbrough, we had um, the, the the management staff was Brian Robson, Viv Anderson, and Gordon McQueen. But we had a, a head coach called John Pickering. Um, and John was brilliant with me, taught me loads and, and helped me, you know, sort of made that transition from a non-league footballer to, to professional footballer. Um, and he spent lots of time with me in, you know, after training sessions, doing extra sessions just to work on parts of my game that, that I didn't have. So I, I was always a, a quick player. Uh, I always played up front with um, a big striker. So get the ball up to the big striker, and I'd always played off him. But John was one of those that um, really studied the game and uh, knew the game was going to change, where you're going from two strikers in a four four two to to playing one striker in a four five one. And if I wanted to have a career, I had to learn to play as a, a single striker and, a, and a, as a target man. So he helped me a lot, and like you say, the, the man management side of it. Um, very empathetic with me, you know, understanding that i come from non-league, always sort of never played with my back to goal, always played facing the goal and and scoring lots of goals. But knowing that the game's going to change and how it's going to change, I think is a a top-class coach that that really studies the game and, you know, becomes a student of the game. And when you understand that side of it, you can see what's going to happen in the game um, and try and get ahead of it, which is... At 40, I'm 48 now, and it still allows me to play football. If I had to change my game, I would have finished 20 years ago, because you can't keep running forwards all the time. You know, I I play with my back to goal. I link up. I can still do that, just um, the other side of it. But um, I, I can I can stand still and hold the ball up and bring other people in now, which just it allows me to carry on playing now, which is uh, which is good. <laughs> Not good for my knee, yeah. but it's and good that, that I can still do it.
0: If you're anything like me, that also not playing that way and deciding to, to go for a run or two, a, a hamstring or a calf muscle is gone.
1: Yeah, train, train um been training all week. Turned up at training on uh, Sunday with the boys and uh, did about half a lap and my calf went. So I had to take <laughs> training in, instead. I couldn't do anything. So it was a nightmare.
0: Yeah, very frustrating. I spent a lot of early lockdown jogging. I, I, I hate jogging, but, yeah. you know, I thought it's good for my mental health. It, it gets me out, and it's great. Um, I'm now walking every day, because <laughs> I haven't been able to jog for about the, <laughs> the last three weeks or so. i doing daily walks instead because my calf is just gone. Um, yeah, I know how you feel.
1: Age, mine, mine, we're, the
0: same, we're the same age, so uh, <laughs> I can relate. So talk to me a little bit you you, uh, you how long you were you in football as a player then um, quite a long time I,
1: I, I had about I played professionally for about eight nine years um, yeah. I, I came into the game at um, 24 you know it was I missed out on a lot of football basically due to my size more than anything I was always a small um, small player and you know football back then was just trying to get the biggest players. If I was playing in Spain, I probably would have been playing from the age of 16. But, you know, playing in England, you had to be about six foot five and and, and built like a brick house. Um, but I was always small, so I, I didn't I didn't turn professional until 24 when somebody finally took a chance on me. And, um, yeah, I about about eight nine years playing professionally. Yeah. So
0: that's really interesting. I didn't, I hadn't realized that about you. Uh, I the system in England. Uh, fascinates and frustrates me uh yeah. you are definitely one of the rare ones who managed to break through later usually if you're not in latest 16 or 17 yeah you don't get in
1: no I was uh, you, know,
0: you get the odd ones that are in their 20s like jamie vardy and yep. well, ian wright didn't break through till quite that's late did he?
1: yeah
0: 20, uh, again, 24 yeah but that's Definitely the exception rather than the rule. Yes. With your experience now, we'll come back to the coaching stuff. But with your experience through coaching, through doing the some of the development squads in the England camp, what what could change, or does anything need to change? Do you think to allow for the late developers? Because surely we're missing out on a lot of talent. We
1: have we've missed out on we've missed out on loads. Um, it's it's difficult. You know the, a lot of the coaches will see players as an end product of what they'll see. So even when you're looking at um, you know I've seen, I've seen scouts looking at you know 12 year olds, 13 year olds, and they always go for for the player that stands out for the one that's, um, for the one that's shining, and it's usually the biggest player because the biggest player stands out you know a 12 year old that's five foot ten. He's going to stand out over a 12-year-old that's, that's really small. Um, but we've got to look beyond that. We've got to look at potential. We've got to look at how what players can become. you know. And it's usually the smaller players that will become the better players because the smaller players have to work harder to get noticed. The smaller players are not going to hold people off and barge people about. Smaller players have to be more skillful. They have to find ways to, to shield the ball without having the size to be able to shield the ball. Um, and they've got to be able to manipulate the ball to get past players. You know, they've got to use the brains to make passes to, to receive the ball back again. Um, so we have to look at potential of what players can become, not what players already look like. And that was, that was a problem with, with myself. That was a problem with my son. is not giving them opportunities because they look small and weak. I believe it's trying to change, you know, with the talent ID. You know, there's lots of courses based around talent ID. Uh, on what to look for. So uh, I think they're making steps in the right direction, but there's still got to be more that that should be done. There's a lot of grassroots kids out there that are playing with excellent ability and excellent attitudes, Um, but they won't get a chance because probably because of the scout. I don't think the scouting system's great, although it's trying to change, but I think they're still picking, you know, if you want to be a scout, you can be a scout. And I think that's wrong. I think you've got to be a good scout to be a scout. You know, what are you looking for? What are you looking at? And what are you trying to get out of it? You know, not just, I fancy being a scout today, so I'll turn up to the park and give somebody a recommendation based on the player I've seen. And then they turn up at, you know, the the local club, the local professional club, give me an opportunity with a development squad and they're a million miles away from where the rest of them are at. So, yeah, they've, they've got to look at They've got to look at that potential. They've got to look beneath the end product, basically. And um, And That's what we're trying to do as coaches as well as coach educators. We're trying to get that into coaches on on developing players as well.
0: Yeah. And do you think the academy structure is helping the situation or hurting the situation?
1: Um, A little bit of both. You know, it's it's a difficult... The academy structure um, is probably way too structured. You know, as a, as a coach educator, we ask people to put together a project for their courses. Um, and a lot of it, if they are working in academies, they tend to struggle. Because coach education, we're talking about as a coach meeting the needs of the players. But in an academy structure, they're telling you what to coach them each week. They give them a little bit of free rein on developing their own practices. But the practices might be, you know, we're going to do passing for six weeks. We're going to do dribbling the ball for for 10 weeks, going to do defending, we're going to do attacking. But what if the players don't need that that day? What if the players don't need that that week? You know, they might be doing defending for a week, but they might be not conceding goals in any of their games, but they're not scoring any. So if you're going to meet the needs of the players, then you've got to look at what the player that needs on that particular training session, not, you know, based on our structure of the academy, this is what we're doing for the next six weeks. And that's where it hinders the players. But everybody wants to be in an academy and everybody wants to be a professional footballer. So we're trying to develop the grassroots side of it to say, you know what, be the best grassroots. People won't want to go to academies. You know, be, you'll develop more here and you'll still get opportunities later on. Why would you want an eight-year-old in an academy? I don't get it. You know, I think it's too young. Let them go and play with their friends and experience that. I played street football, I played on the park, I played in the back garden, I played down the road, I played everywhere, and he didn't do me any harm, You know, I didn't get regular coaching until way into my career. So, yeah, it took me a long time to get there, but things have changed since then. So, get your coaching later on. But you should have good coaching at Grassroots.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think football, you've had a few that have gone to the States, for instance, to do... University for four years and have managed to come back, but I think because it's so hard to break into the the top divisions once you're past 18, that yeah. you know players are less willing to to try that route of going to the states for four years. Yeah. Uh, whereas you know you look at golf, golf is full of professional British professional golfers that yeah. went to the states, played their two, three, four years of university, and then graduated to the tour. Yeah, because they they had that option. Uh, I, I just wish we could do more through schools.
1: Yeah, I think it's the same. Um, you know, more sort of young English players now are going over to Germany because they'll go and play in the Bundesliga, but they can't play in the Premiership over here because they were not getting many opportunities. To be fair, lockdown's been brilliant. If the coronavirus has done anything, it's it's done well for the footballers because there's more young players getting opportunities playing in the Premiership with the likes of Arsenal and. In Chelsea, and Man United, Man City, etc., they're getting more opportunities than they probably would have done before. But before all of this, everybody was they were all clearing off to to Germany or somewhere else like that to go and play, you know, regular first team football that they can't get over here. Um, yet the young players that have been playing for Arsenal and Chelsea have shown that they they can do it. Age has got nothing to do with our Good, you, you know, it's it's only experience, and that's what they miss out on and getting that experience. So end up clearing off elsewhere and somebody else gets the benefits of it, which doesn't do the national squad any favours.
0: No, so let's, let's talk about that now. So you transitioned out of playing uh, and into coaching. Tell us a little bit about your coaching journey and then you ended up with the England under-23s. Yeah. Uh, tell, talk to us about your coaching journey.
1: Um, yeah, it was, it was a difficult transition going from, um, from playing. It's always difficult stopping. And to be honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I always always enjoyed coaching, you know, and teaching and educating. Uh, and I ended up getting a job at uh, a college. So I got a job at a college, and I was ended up I was doing a bit of teaching, but I was also helping um, a friend of mine, Dave Regis, run the uh, the football academy. They call it. It's not really an academy, but the football program that they had at the college there, and it really got me into the the sort of coaching. So I started. I was. The plan was while I was playing, I was always going to do my coaching badges, but then you sort of time goes by and you never really get them done. And it wasn't actually until I finished that uh, I took them all, but I decided I'd done the prelim a million years ago. Um, and then I decided to go back and do the level one, real basic level one. Enjoyed that, did the level two, UA for B, A license and so on over the next sort of 10 years or whatever it was that I did it. And then just absolutely... Loved it, you know, being on the grass, it still allows me to uh, run around and play football a little bit, but I'm also sort of, you know, imparting what I've learned onto other people and watching them develop as well. It's been, it's been fantastic. So, yeah, and I I just, just really enjoy coaching, but being on the grass is, it's it's me, it's being outdoors and playing football, basically, that's how I see it, it's being outdoors and playing football and having a bit of fun and and doing a bit of learning and, yeah, uh, yeah, it's fun. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get that. I completely agree with you as well. So you, as far as coaching goes, you love being out on the grass with yep. the players. What, what's your favorite aspect of coaching? What, do, what is it you, you really... So some some coaches just love the tactical stuff. Yeah. Others love the player development. You know, what, what, for you, which bit, what's your passion?
1: I'm technical, technical coach. You know, if... if I understand all the tactics, you know, I, I, as I mentioned, John Pickering before about being a student at the game, that's, that was one thing that got me into this and, and, you know, made sure that I really understood the game. So I, I, I class myself as being a student of the game, trying to learn at all times. Um, but the technical side of the game is something that I've never, never stopped developing. Um, even when I worked for the FA and there was, we had a big debate on, you know, teaching games for understanding is the way to go. And we went through a period of that that must play more games and going, well, hold on a minute. If you can't manipulate the ball, you can't play football. If you can't pass the ball, you can't play football. If you can't control the ball, you can't play football. So teaching games for understanding is great, but they've got to have the basics first. They've got to understand that to manipulate the ball, you know, working on that first touch, first touch being the most important thing in football they have to have. So the technical side of the game is the most important side of the game for me. Without that, tactics mean nothing. All of that. It, it means nothing if if they can't manipulate the ball. So uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of the so if, if I ever did anything, you know, other than full coaching, then I, I'd become a technical coach. That would be sort of my thing. Or a striker coach, football, you know, as a forward. I just love scoring goals still. So It'd be either working with forwards or or a technical coach.
0: Who, as a coach so far, who's the best player you've coached?
1: Um, I had a guy called um, Chris McGinley when I was doing the uh, England stuff. All the ability in the world, probably never get an opportunity because he he would be classed as having a bad attitude. But I you know I got on him really well with him. But technically. Unreal. He could pass a a 50-yard ball and you wouldn't have to move. He'd put it right on your foot. We did a crossbar challenge at St. George's Park. You know, just a bit of fun to to finish the training from the halfway line. And he couldn't hit it to save his life. So he asked if he could take the ball 10 yards back, which he did. And he hit it three times out of three. Unbelievable. Halfway line was too short. I put everything behind it. I was just about reaching the 18-yard box. He puts no effort into it. At all, ten yards behind the halfway line, and hits the bar three out of three. Unbelievable. Um, so my experience
0: yeah. is that strikers aren't meant to be able to kick it that far. I <laughs> I, I never could either.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it was a typical midfielder, no effort, you know, and me uh, as a striker putting everything behind it and falling over. But yeah, it was it was a really good play, and we had, we had another one as well called uh, Royce as a uh, just as a dribbler, you know, unbelievable. Very very fast, quick feet. We had uh, another player called Royce, dribbler, um, really really quick, um, quick feet, quick brain, um, very very skillful on the ball. You know when we first went there to the England setup, he was playing as a as a winger, but he was lost as a winger. We played we played a diamond, and he played at the tip of the diamond for us, and unreal, unreal. Just you know. Stole the show every time. If we could get the ball to him, that was like our whole game plan in the end, is just give him the ball. So work through midfield, Chris on the ball, get it into Royce and he'll make something happen. Just frighten people to death with his pace and his skills.
0: So what happened with him?
1: Another one really just sort of fell by the wayside. I mean, it, the, the squad we had was, it was, it was the under-23 squad, but it was also classed as um, learning development. No, learning disability. Uh, England set up so there was no pathway for them to go forward and then they sort of all the funding sort of went with it and they got rid of the program altogether and then it um, they went through all the age groups you know the 17s 18s 19s, 20s 21s etc so they just sort of ended up playing local football because they were from London so I was getting lots of phone calls you know I've got a team to manage can I come and play for you said, well, you know you you live in London you're going to move up here no, I'm, I'm working up here. Oh, see, yeah, it was a bit of a nightmare for him, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't. They're probably not even playing anymore. You know, that was a, it was a few years ago, but it's what happens in football. People sort of drift out and drop out, and nothing happens.
0: So uh, you you worked a bit in the England setup, uh, and then did you go straight from that into your role with the EFL, or was were there uh, other steps in there?
1: No, I was still working for the FA. And um, so I used to be. Um, there was a program called the Tesco Skills Program, which was a, a, a grassroots, the only full time um, grassroots coaching program. So which was uh was sixty six of us originally, just working around the country, coaching uh, in schools with the with the teachers, grassroots clubs, um, doing sort of after school stuff as well. Um, So after the England stuff, I was still working in that programme, but I was a team leader, so I ran two teams, uh, one in Leicester and uh, one in Northampton. So I had two teams of coaches that were doing that sort of stuff, and I was sort of leading that. And then uh, 2000, well, the England stuff was still going then. We had the, uh, we did a tri-nations with Wales and uh, Ireland, back them as well. So, um, and then after that, it just sort of, cut the funding for it and that drifted away and I got a new job in 2015 with the EFL Trust.
0: So talk to us now about your job with the EFL Trust. What is that doing exactly?
1: So that's um, it's coach education. The program is linked to the University of South Wales, which is um, the community trust's coaches go to... Um, do a, a course foundation degree with the university, which is a, a blended learning course. So they, they do their degree, but they also have to do, um, you know, like practical work, school work as part of that degree. Uh, so many work hours that they have to do with that. So it's, it's a sort of work-based blended learning, get the degree at the end of it. They can do a third year top up, which is the B, BSc. Um, but as part of the degree, They also get some coach education, level one and level two. Unfortunately, if people come on with a level one and level two, that's as far as it gets. They don't get the UA for B. So although I can deliver it, our programme doesn't fund it for them. They only get the level one and level two as part of the agreement with a foundation degree. So I basically go around the country organising courses, running them, sorry, setting them up and running them myself. Maybe um, get a couple of extra tutors in if I need them.
0: Yeah, so yeah, so you're working on developing coaches now. Yeah. Still desperate to be a coach again?
1: Yeah, I was I was I was doing bits. I was, you know, working sort of non league football. So we've got a, a club here called Baseford United. It's like a fast up and growing club. I think they're about step three now, step three or four now. Um, their goal is to be in the league and I was a part of that journey. But I just got too busy with work, I couldn't commit to it. So but now I'm I'm now I've sort of organised how I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I need to get back on the grass now. I think full-time eventually is what I want to do. So I'll sort of, sort of put a plan together of how I'm going to try and achieve that in the sort the of next five years. So I'm about two years into it. The so first part was doing a, a master's degree, which I did in uh, in coaching. And then, um, yeah, it's about getting opportunities now, getting back on the grass and getting opportunities and working towards it. So, yeah. That's what I want to do now is get back, back out on the grass and do that full-time if I can, if possible, either coaching or managing.
0: It's good to have a plan. With coaching coaches, I, I had a, an interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago on my podcast with uh, someone else based in Nottingham, actually, Mustafa Sakar, who is Senior Lecturer in Sports Psychology at Nottingham Trent University. Oh. Uh, and we had a fantastic conversation. Uh, his big thing is resilience. Yeah. And... I like the work that he's doing uh, along with, I think it's David Fletcher from Loughborough, around resilience and kind of, in a sense, I guess, redefining or bringing back to life what resilience actually is because it's been a bit watered down uh, by being overused. And we're talking about resilience in a player and always that resilience is um, context specific. Uh, so rather than talking about a resilient individual, we talk about resilience in each context where that, that individual finds themselves. So uh, resilience uh, in football. So you're trying to get, and resilience is the ability to perform under pressure. So you as a striker, okay. how can we build your resilience so that you perform better on the pitch? But we're, we're moving from individual resilience into team and then organizational resilience, And we got into talking about coaches and the ability that coaches may or may not have to in truly understanding what resilience is, but also in taking the time, and this is why man management is so important, taking the time to work with individual players to help build their personal resilience. Is that something that you work on when you're coaching the coaches or is it an area that actually needs more development?
1: Funnily enough, I did my degree on, um, I did a, a, my, my final degree, and my final project on mental toughness. So I've actually read some of his papers and uh, Fletcher as well as part of that resilience and mental toughness. So for me, it was a big thing. So I've always classed myself as being mentally tough. Um, and a lot of that will come from, so, sorry, my, so my degree part was, can it be coached? Or is it something you're, you develop over years of you know bounce-back ability and bouncing back from failures and disappointments, et cetera, et cetera? And through sort of all my research, um, it can be coached. But you have to totally understand it. And the same with resilience as well. You have to understand what it is if you're going to coach it. And the problem is, is coaches don't understand what it is, what it truly means. And if they don't understand what it truly means, they can't coach it so i try to coach it but it's it's not an easy thing to do because again like i say people still don't get it they think you know it's all from all your heartache and and everything that's happened to you over the years how do you bring that into your coaching with with your players can you put them in tough situations where they're going to fail so yeah it's it's something that you can but you like i say you You've got to get people to fully understand what it actually means before, before you can coach it. So, yeah, I try. I do try to, to try and bring that in, but you've got to find lots of different ways in, in which you can make things really, really difficult because people have to fail to bounce back from that failure. But how do they see that? You mentioned before, as a striker, being in tough situations, like penalty shootout, You cannot recreate that situation. I don't care how many times you practice penalties, you cannot create, recreate that long walk, all the fans moaning and groaning at you, especially if you're at the other end, the opposition end, that long walk down there where you can change your mind five or six times. All you can do is put them in situations where they can be confident with their penalty, not change their mind, take 100 penalties in the same spot and do exactly the same and what will be will be. But you can't recreate it. Um, so it's it's... It is a difficult thing to um, coach coaches and coach players, but it is possible as long as you understand exactly what you're trying to get out of it. Yeah. I've really, I've got to be honest, I've really enjoyed, you know, doing the research side of that. And I actually put a project together for, um, for a coach friend of mine at Derby County. So on how he could, uh, some of the things that they could try and do in in training. So yeah, I've still got that somewhere that I probably should give to him at some stage. Yeah,
0: I, I as Mustafa and I were talking, it just you know it came out that I care very much about player well-being because players are people. Um, they're they're not commodities. Uh, they are people, and if we can get if we can get coaches and clubs to understand that these players are people, uh, and that how they respond under pressure has as much to do with what they are, uh, who they are as a person, as it does. Who they are as a player so we're actually caring about their whole lives uh, that we actually create better players uh, because you create happier people and more supported people yeah. um, and you know the the environment that that they talk about is is a facilitative environment and that's where resilience is able to be taught and learned where it's high challenge and high support so you, you create those opportunities for failure yeah uh, but you follow it up with complete support, not complete beratement. (laughs) And yeah. So I just wonder, and and that's one of the things that, you know, in your role as a, as someone who's coaching coaches or training coaches, uh, you know, I was interested in your opinion on you. Is it something that we could do a better job of teaching coaches how to
1: do? I think so. I think um, it would probably be better if it was, you know, if it was a section on, on, on one of the courses the, the problem is, you know, you get a you get all the course structure, you get the scheme of work, and there's nothing in there whatsoever on it. There's stuff in there on motivation and self-esteem and stuff like that. But um, there's nothing actually in there on, you, you know, we, we, we make a big point sometimes of um, putting a clown face on. You know, I could have had the worst day of my life, but I, I step through the door and how do I coach everybody? I've got 30 people in there and be all happy and jolly and, and try and coach them and stuff like that. Um, like there's nothing wrong, but how do they do that with their players? If you've got kids, all kids want to do is run around and have lots of fun. How can you do that if you're having a terrible, terrible day? But there's nothing on that on how you can coach coaches. We only do that based on our own experiences, but it's not actually a part of the course. So I tend to go off course a lot, course structure a lot to to, to add my own experiences based on what I think they need. And that sort of resilience or mental toughness side of it, sometimes they're going to need it. You know, we don't, like you say, people people first. We talk about people first and not players first. So if a kid's at school all day and he's had the worst day of his life and he turns up to training and he's awful in training, that's probably nothing to do with his ability. That might be something that's going off at home. But if we don't try and tap into that and find out what's going off, we're just going to treat him like everybody else. Why are you having a bad day? You've gone from the best player to the worst player all of a sudden. Well, we don't know what's happening in their home life. So how do, you, um, how do you coach that into coaches to, to understand that? It's not a part of the course, so it's, it's very difficult to... Um, I've been doing this a long time, so I, I try to use all my own experiences of things that have happened with me and what's happened to me and, and, and try and get that across to coaches. But it should actually be, in my opinion, part of the course structure because it's important.
0: Yeah, and, and it, I think it's the only way we're actually going to change anything is, is yeah. to realise that it's important enough to, to put it in. I
1: mean, they do a whole section on motivation. Who cares? <laughs> Kids turn up to play football because they're motivated. The structure of some of the courses, it's it, they could do it as an online part. You know, it doesn't need to be half an hour in the classroom talking about motivation and self-esteem. Talk about resilience. Talk about those days where... You know, you're having a really bad day, but you've still got to turn up and coach, you know, 20, 30 kids that just want to play and have fun. How do you do that? How do you put the yeah. clown face on and step over the line and, you know, and look all jolly and happy and, and run around with the kids and, and let them have loads of fun while you're having an absolute nightmare in the back of your mind? You know, <laughs> there's, there's nothing in the courses about that, and it should be.
0: No, all the way up. So not just in grassroots, but yeah. right the way right up the Yeah, through the leagues. Following on from that, into it, because it directly ties in the issue of mental health uh, and and mental well-being for uh, for footballers, in particular, you know the the stats are frightening when you look at the number of current footballers who are struggling with mental illness and yeah. then former uh, footballers who have failed to transition uh, and fallen into to mental ill health. Uh, something needs to change in order to prevent this uh, so that, we're, that we're, we we can stop fighting the symptoms and actually start fighting the cause why do you think what's in your opinion why is this why is mental illness such a big issue in football at the moment i know it's a big societal issue but footballers they, they're supposed to have everything right they're living the dream they're living every little boy's dream so why are they struggling so badly with their mental health
1: I think a lot of it will do, you know, is, is to do with the pressure because the most pressurised situation in football is it's going to be money, it's going to be contracts, it's a job at the end of the day. You know, I probably went through some really bad times but I've always classed myself as being sort of mentally strong so I just sort of fought, fought through them, never spoke about it but fought through it. You know, my wife was, um, <clears throat> she was laid up with a bad back brace and I had a two-year-old son now to look after her as well as well as travel down to Northampton from Nottingham. It's only an hour and a half, but doing that there and back, trying to have a career, trying to play at the top of your game, trying to get another contract, new strikers coming through the door and and not talking about what's going off in your personal life. I just sort of fought through it. I probably went through a really bad stage, but never really thought about it because I just, you know, it was the way my mind works is just get on with it and crack on. But, you know, the world's changed and times have changed. But there is a hell of a lot of pressure in football. I know it's a, such a privileged profession to be in. And they do. They do have everything. But they also get the pressure that goes along with it. You know, the pressure of the, the, the town they're playing for. Every single fan, they always want to talk. You can't go out for a meal without somebody um, sitting next to you and, or wanting an autograph or a photograph. You know, when I first went to Middlesbrough, we went, we went shopping to Tesco. I had five people following me around, looking in my basket all the time. What have I got in my basket? What am I eating? You know, and I've got my missus next to me and, and you know, my, my little son there, and they're barging him out of the way to try and get a photograph or an autograph. And it's constant. I had kids from my other lad when he went to school. I told him not to tell him who he was. I told him, I said, just make your own friends. But he couldn't help himself. You know, he was about, I can't remember, he was probably about 10 years of age, told everybody in the school who he was. They're all coming around and knocking on the door. They're all looking through the window at night. I couldn't answer my own front door. It's, it's a nightmare, you know, and, and that, was, that was only me. Imagine what someone like Janino was like, you know, superstar, world class. But there's a, there's a lot of pressure in there that does, you know, football's a macho sport. So getting people to talk about it and fair play to everybody that's started to speak about it now. Uh, I think it's amazing and, you know, and I'm starting to hear... A few players that I used to play with that are coming out on podcasts and just talking about things like that and that. And you would have never known when you were playing with them the struggles that they were going through because they, they never spoke about it. So encouraging people to speak about it is one way. Obviously, it's really important, but it's still that macho image of, you know, I'm a man and I'm going to get on with it. I'm going to crack on I'm not going to tell anybody. So, yeah, there's, there's, it, it, does, it still needs to be a, a hell of a lot more work to be done. But yeah, it's, it's probably the pressure that's, and, and to sustain it for the longest, it could be a short career, it could be over tomorrow. And that's probably the, you know, one of the biggest pressures that go with football. You want it for so long and then it could be over. Like so it's, um, it's, it's very, very high pressure, but you, you get the rewards with it. So it's, it's a balance. Yeah.
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, the... I think currently the average age of retirement is around 28 for a professional footballer,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: and uh, that's, uh, that's pretty young. Uh, you still got yeah. most of your life to live, and, uh, and you know, a, a lot of it, I think, you know, from my perspective, it comes down to identity. You know, when, when you're a professional footballer, that is, it's not just what you do, it's who you are. And so when you lose that identity or you feel that you might, so the pressure from the young lads coming up, the pressure of your contract coming to an end, it's not, Oh, I I need to look for another contract because I love this sport. And this is just, you know, it's, I need to look for another contract because if I lose it, I am no longer who I am. Yeah. Um, I'm not just losing what I do. I'm losing who I am. I'm losing my identity. Uh, And that is, it's a lot of pressure for someone.
1: It is, especially if, if, if you know, for those players that that's all they've ever known. And that's why so I go back to you know academies. Why they're getting players in at seven and eight years of age? They they shouldn't be in there because that could be the ho- the only thing they ever know. They go up to eighteen, nineteen, and then see you later. We don't want you. You're not playing in the first team anymore. I've been here ten years. What do I do now?
0: Absolutely.
1: You know, and that's those younger Absolutely. players that you know they should allow them to still play with their friends because they, they cut them off from everything if you're in an academy you can't play school football you can't play grassroots football you can't play you know with your friends on the park so you're you literally cut off from everything that they should be doing you know that sort of just express yourself time free play fun time of football of yeah. what it is at the end of the day it's a hobby if you get paid for a hobby it's it's the best thing in the world but you know, you know as an 8 year old playing football they want to they're going to play all the time well, you can't because you're in the academy. Come on, let them play. Let them go and play with their mates. That's what they need yeah. to do, you know?
0: So yeah. when you began to sense that you were coming towards the end of your career, what was that transition like for you? Was that, was that a difficult mental transition or do you feel you're prepared for it? How did it go?
1: It, it came quite, quite suddenly. I was, at, um, I was at Shrewsbury and, you know, things weren't working out. So uh, we were sort of agreeing, sort of cancelling the contract. But I had four clubs that were interested in me going there at the time. So I wasn't too fussed with that. You know, I was getting getting paid off from Shrewsbury and I was going to, you know, sort of continue my career at another club and that was fine. But as I was coming to the end of the sort of agreement that we was coming to, (coughs) ITV Digital, who were sponsoring the football league at the time, they sort of pulled out. Um, pulled all their money out uh, of the football and uh, those four clubs that were interested they disappeared all of a sudden they couldn't afford me without asking they just couldn't afford me and they just sort of disappeared and I was sort of left in limbo so which was a bit of a shock and then uh, just went searching you know I went up to Scotland try and get a club up there I went to um, I went to Ireland try to get a club there I even went sort of uh, like a day trial thing that they had at Barnet, just to try and get, um, you know, spot scout or try and get something like, I was literally trying to cling on because, like you say, it's it's what you do and it's what you love and then all of a sudden it just finished. So yeah, it was. Uh, it took me a while to sort of get my head around it. But like I said before, it's just, I, I just crack on. I just cracked on, I didn't really think too much about it. I was devastated, I was gutted, but at the end of the day, you know, I've got family, got to work, so I went and got a job and then just, you know, sort of went and played, played local, got a bit of money for that, decent money at sort of that sort of non-league level uh, and working at the same time, it sort of made up for it a little bit because I was still playing football. And to be honest with all I ever wanted to do was play football. You know, I love the professional side of the game, but I just, I just love playing the game. Um, it was never about the money, but, you know, you've got to live at the end of the day and you've gone from a you know, a, a decent wage to a very lowly wage, and then you're struggling. So it was all the struggles as well, and um, as I've said, you know, I, yeah, probably blocked it all off and just cracked on with it. I'm surprised I didn't break down at any stage, but uh, that's that probably mental tough side of me that I just sort of, you know, just got on with it. I think that was it really, and yeah, sort of cracked on. Yeah.
0: So you, you, you're, you are where you are now, uh, which is still not where you'd like to finish. You, you have more dreams. We've talked a little bit about that. What do you see as your biggest challenges going forward?
1: Um, probably opportunities. You see, for me, the sort of end goal is to um, manage full-time or, or coach full-time. But I also know it's, it's difficult in England. You know, it's like a magic roundabout in England. You know, you lose a job, you get a job when you're on that roundabout. But getting into that, is probably the hardest part. So, you know, I'm probably going to look abroad. That's sort of the end goal is to look abroad. Where I don't know, but it'll be the opportunities. Spain would be ideal. So I'm learning Spanish, but that would be the ideal goal. But I like the sort of, as I mentioned before, I like the technical side of the game. Spain's very technical. Germany, Portugal, you know, Belgium, France, any of those sort of technical uh, football places, I would go there but it's finding that opportunity is going to be the biggest
0: the biggest thing. Well if you find that spot in Spain I, and you have room on your staff I'm, <laughs> I'm 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 always game for moving to Spain as well. Yeah, that no was <laughs> That's great. So uh, it is for you right now it's finding the opportunities it's yes. it's, it's yeah. getting in front of the right people. At yeah, the right time.
1: As, as part of the plan, I, you know, I, I did the master's degree as part of that, and I also said that uh, as part of my plan is probably find. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not stupid, I'm not daft. I know I can't do it on my own, so I'll, I'll probably be looking along the lines of a, you know, an agent or an intermediary or whatever they call these days. Someone has got more context than I've got, that's going to get that opportunity. I, I, I still apply for things, you know, probably not the things I really want, but. Having been off the pitch for a couple of years, it's even harder to get an opportunity, you know, when when I'm not coaching at the moment, I'm coach educating. So I spoke to someone the other day and it was like, oh, you've not done much in four years. What have you been up to? So I do a lot of part-time stuff. I just don't put it on my CV. You know, I'm not completely off the grass. I do bits, but I can't fill my CV up saying I've worked with this club for three weeks and this club for three weeks and another club for two weeks. My CV will be 20 pages long. But that's what they think. They see your CV and they just assume that you've done nothing for four years. But so, yeah, it's, it's finding that, that right opportunity that's going to get me where I want to get to. But all I'll say that is if I don't get there, it won't be the end of the world because all I know is that I tried, you know, and as long as I've given it everything I've got, I'm happy with, with where I'll be. Um, and I was the same when I wanted to play professional football. So, as long as I give it everything I've got, I won't have any regrets that whether I fail or not. But again, that's, that's me and that's how I am.
0: I think that's great. I think that's a fantastic attitude. You know, the title of this podcast is to sing when you're losing uh, and the, the whole point being that actually it's the failures, the setbacks, the disappointments, they're, they're meant to teach us. They're meant to strengthen us. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. not, we're not meant to fight against them and yeah. grovel in them. Always, meant to grow from always, uh,
1: them. You know, if, if you've tried everything you've wanted to try, and you don't succeed with it, you can't have any regrets. People ask me if I have any regrets in football. I don't. You know? Well, you know, you could have signed for Fulham. Kevin Keegan wanted you at Fulham. That's not my choice. The club won't let me go. So how can I regret not going? You know? Things like that, it's just... When they're out of your control, they they don't worry me. You know, I control the controllables, and that's how I I sort of live my life. I, I do what I do, and if I give it everything I've got and I don't succeed, then can't regret you know not making it well I can you know all I can say is I've tried everything I've tried and what will be will be
0: yeah another great tip there controlling the controllables Uh, so important uh, for a good strong mind being able to to recognize what you can control and and (laughs) accept what you can't (laughs) very good Chris I have really enjoyed getting to know you a bit I loved our conversation So thank you very much for that. No, thank you. a great time. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see you on the grass sometime soon. Yeah,
1: hopefully. That'd be great.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Sing When You're Losing with Chris Freestone. If you coach kids and want someone to come and speak to your fellow coaches or even the parents, Chris has a wealth of knowledge and experience he can bring to you and your grassroots club. We also wish Chris well in his search for a full-time coach slash manager position. You can connect with Chris on LinkedIn at Chris Freestone MSC. Please look us up on Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere you find your podcasts. If you found this helpful, leave a review and spread the word as well. Don't forget to subscribe or to check back for next week's exciting conversation. The world is a crazy and unpredictable place, so don't forget to sing when you're losing.